Well, hello and welcome to another in the series, Spiritual Foundations. Today we're looking at a very important topic as part of this series, a foundation that every Christian needs solid in their life, and that is the area of worship. Worship. You know, I've been reflecting on worship and thinking, you know, who is one of the great examples in Scripture? And in, in all honesty, I think King David is uh, one of the people that most would consider someone who we, we know a lot about when it comes to worship and someone who seemed to be deeply passionate about worshipping God. And we see him in many different settings. You know, you think of David up in the hills. He's got that guitar-like of a, a piece of equipment. And uh, there he is singing songs to God, composing songs to God all alone just with sheep for company. Other times he's there in a, a huge celebration with many musicians and singers uh, rejoicing in worship over the living God. And uh, so today we're going to have a, a look at King David, a passage here based in 2 Samuel and chapter 6 and the first 21 verses. And it's the occasion when David brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem to be placed in the tabernacle. David has recently conquered Jerusalem and that's going to be the the capital of Israel. And so it's a time of great celebration, bringing the ark into to God's tabernacle. And David, um, more than perhaps anyone, is really excited about this and filled with exuberant praise. Let me give you a little bit of background here. This is the first few verses. 6.1 of Second Samuel. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahoy, sons of Abinadab, were guarding the new cart, uh, guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahoy was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles and cymbals. And so you got the idea there. They're bringing the ark uh, toward the uh, tabernacle and there's this huge celebration going on. Many, many people present. Um, the ark of the covenant might be just good to have a quick look at that again to remind you of it. And so as you can see there, it's, uh, it's covered in gold. It was made of wood, but coated all in gold. And uh, the ark has two cherubim uh, on the top of it. And it's really, it's, it's part of the symbol of God's presence. The ark was, of course, uh, also had other sim sim symbolic realities in it. For instance, inside the ark, there was a golden pot of manna to remind people of God's provision. There was Aaron's rod that budded to remind God of people's of, of God's uh, miraculous power, and uh, the Ten Commandments, of course, written in stone, which is a reminder of God's covenant between humanity and Himself. You know, David uh, is um, going to be uh, showing us some tremendous principles here in worship as we journey through today. And can I suggest re just repeating this last verse? Um, David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles and cymbals. Doesn't it sound like a celebration? In fact, that word's used. Number one, worship involves celebration. Worship involves celebration. You know, um, back in the 1980s and uh, probably 90s to an extent, 
there were some churches that were very resistant to celebrative forms of worship. So in other words, the idea of a piano or an organ or quieter sort of instrumentation, acoustic instrumentation and so forth, that was fine in worship. But the concept of, you know, uh, drums and electric guitars, really that wasn't suitable. And so there were some churches that strongly resisted that, you know, whether it's Churches of Christ, Baptists, some Anglicans, and you know, you name it, many of them did. Um, I remember uh, a meeting I had uh, a while back when I was on the, um, evang- uh, sorry, the uh, church planning task force, one of them here in uh, Victoria in the BUV a few years back, and um, one of the members of that task force at the time was Julian Dunham. Uh, Julian had had a lot to do with the Brethren churches, and one of the things he shared with me was that uh, over the last 25 years or so in Tasmania, and Tasmania had a lot of Brethren churches because there had been revivals in the 1800s and early 1900s where many of their churches had grown dramatically, Um, but he was talking about their resistance to modern worship and the fact that something like half of them had closed their doors in about a 25-year period and that was the biggest reason. The many people of my generation and younger had just thought, look, the worship is just not relevant to where we're at and so they left for more contemporary Baptist churches or Churches of Christ or Pentecostal churches and the brethren suffered the consequences of that. And I remember my very first church was a Bretho church and they were exactly like that. Great Bible teaching, but the worship was very, very conservative. And so sometimes people have this in their mind. They think a certain type of music is worship or another sort is not. Well, really, it's, it's mostly about the lyric content and the heart behind it. Um, just having a look here at uh, Chronicles 1 Chronicles 23.5, it says, 4,000 are to praise the Lord with the musical instruments I provided for that purpose. So this is King David organising thousands of musicians, you know, and I know we have the image of him with the acoustic-like guitar up in the hills by himself, but also he organised huge number of musicians and singers for, for loud, celebrative forms of worship. We see both types are certainly in the Scriptures. You know, when I was in um, England, I visited uh, Nicky Gumbel's church, Holy Trinity Brompton, and that's an Anglican church. And I just went to one of the regular services, uh, I think 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, immediately, you are struck with the fact that worship is very celebrative in style. There's, you know, there's plenty of lighting going on, there's smoke machines, uh, cool band, providing some tremendous worship, both both, um, upbeat and also reflective, but... There's no doubt about it. It has that celebrative feel about it. And, uh, you know, Nicky Gumbel's actually spearheaded really what's like a movement amongst the, uh, the Anglican churches in Britain where many of their churches that had been dying that were small, small church in a big cathedral, um, you know, his movement has come in and often, you know, because they run Worship Central too, so they train worship leaders that go all over the world and they'll come in with a, with a worship team, they'll come in with a new senior pastor and that church that's been struggling for years suddenly is relaunched and becomes a healthy, vibrant, growing church. And they've done that all over Britain. You know, it's, um, to be honest, it's, it's, it had an impact on London to the point where in England the statistics were that the amount of people attending church was declining year after year, decade after decade, um, that's turned around in London now, where actually churches are on the rise again. That's been one of the movements that's been key to that. Another one, actually, interestingly enough, has been Hillsong. So Hillsong have uh, what is the second largest church in London, and they're planting more and more churches all the time. Some of those plants are very large also. 
And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've, I visited the church when I was in England and um, it was uh, one of the theatres in the West End. Uh, so a big building, uh, seating probably, oh, I'd estimate, a good couple of thousand people or more. Um, I went to an afternoon service, good 1,500 or so, even at that time of day, running, running four services a Sunday, five I think they're running now. But as I walked into the building, you know, the music was very loud, very dynamic, and they had a backdrop, and like here we probably have a 20-foot wall, they had about a 50-foot wall behind the stage, um, and it was filled with imagery the whole time. So, you know, if they're singing a song about creation, it's filled with imagery of creation. Singing a song about um, the cross, then there's imagery of crosses everywhere, you know, it's very powerful. So both imagery and sound were dynamic. And I know some of you are probably thinking, yeah, but all those bells and whistles, we don't need all that stuff. Well, you know, I mean, I'm, what I'm saying, my whole point here, David didn't need 4,000 musicians, did he, to worship God? He could just go off by himself and do it. But the reality is there are different expressions of worship. And certainly I realise Hillsong's a very uh, celebrative style in a lot of their worship. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing is I was there with my family and I was watching my teenage kids. And after the wow factor was over, after the first couple of songs, it was an extended worship time, about eight songs, longer than normal, and uh, I just watched, you know, my teenagers engage in worship, deeply engage in worship. And so uh, what I'm saying here is this, this is actually important stuff we're talking about here. And, uh, you know, um, I think it's uh, something I see deeply rooted in David, but we're going to see other sides of the coin too as we, or other, other, other looks of the prism of worship here. Second uh, Samuel 6.6 6 says this, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark. Now, it's, it's really weird, isn't it? You see this suddenly, you've got this scripture here in the middle of this account. There's all this celebration going on. There's worship going on. And Uzzah does something that seems to be very reasonable. The ark is being transported on a new cart and it, the, the, the oxen stumble and so he tries to steady it and God strikes him down. What on earth is that all about? Well, sometimes you've just got to be really honest with the scripture and what does it say? And you know, It actually states here because of his irreverent act. I mean, that's what the Holy Spirit has led the author to write here, his irreverent act. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, I, I guess, you know, we've got to dig a little deeper here and just reflect upon more than just this account and say, well, God obviously saw something in user that wasn't right. Perhaps he was there in the celebration, but not one with the celebration. Perhaps a user saw the ark as a valuable piece of furniture, but not something that represented the very presence of God. Uh, can I make this suggestion? Number two, worship includes reverence. Worship includes reverence uh, for instance psalm 95 6 come let us bow down in worship let us kneel before the lord our maker now, certainly the the scriptures are also filled with moments of reverence in worship you know i remember one time um where i was uh, leading a service it was largely young adults this particular one and it was a more reflective service it's one of the things that we'd done we had a a large uh, coffee table, um, similar to the sort of tables that uh, the Middle Eastern people reclined around in Jesus' day. We had grapes and bread, and uh, we used that and just kind of crowded around it as a centerpiece for communion. And so we remembered the Lord in communion. 
And as part of the journey of that service, one of the things I ask people to do is I want you just to be reflective for a moment. We listened to some praise and worship music and I just said, uh, having actually read a song, I'd written and played that song, then I said, what I'd like you to do now is I'd like you to write a psalm to the Lord. Over this next 15 minutes, write a psalm to the Lord and then we'll share those psalms mixed in with some songs and we will use that as a, a worship moment for the Lord. And um, so, um, so they did. And some of those uh, psalms that people had written just in that 15 minutes were really beautiful, very powerful. Um, let me read one of those. This one was written by my daughter when she was 16. Your love is like the sweetest honey, soothing to the soul and nourishing to the body, your perfect creation. My body, paper under my writer's hand, the most beautiful poetry and flesh, your own image. Your love is like the sweetest music, me as your damaged, daunting instrument, tuned into your overflowing love. Now my life is sweet like cinnamon. You have pulled me out of my wreck and gently pulled me to the safe shore. I was stuck, drowning in an endless abyss of lies and destruction. My life is owing to you. You have rescued me from the impossible because your love is impossible. Second Samuel 6.11 says this, The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with, with rejoicing, so to the city of Jerusalem where they'll place it in the tabernacle. Um, this is interesting, isn't it? Uh, I realise there where this guy gets struck down for his irreverent acts. It, it, like the idea is, oh, people need to be in fear of the Ark of the Covenant. And then, of course, we see, you know, as part of the journey, well, they place the Ark of the Covenant at this guy over to Edom's place. And man, he's just getting his socks blessed off. Everything he touches, just God blesses, you know. He's getting blessed more and more. And he's just thinking, well, it'd be great to leave the Ark here forever. And, <laughs> and David hears about this. And we're going to read some more about what David discovers. And so it's not that um, people are to fear the Ark of God, but rather they're to be in awe of it. And often we read the word fear, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, and I think actually where it's referring to, to God, it has more to do with being in awe of God, would be, be um, I think, a more accurate translation, being in awe of God. And so on the one hand, there is that, that sense of celebration, but also we need that awe of God. Um, you know, uh, just to, to add to this, uh, just picturing the ark for a moment, and we see here the presence of God meant that um, Obed-Edom's whole household was being blessed. Just to describe um, the ark for a moment here, uh, the two cherubim represented God's glory. They sat upon the mercy seat, which literally means the place of atonement. It is so ca called because it is the place where God manifested himself for the purpose of atonement you know in summary really what the ark was was a, a symbol of was the very presence of god and obed edom knew what it was to be certainly blessed because the presence of god was there on his property can i suggest this number three god's presence is central to worship number three god's presence is central to worship to illustrate this uh, let me tell you a story about uh, matt redman uh, you've known with many many songs that uh, you've sung of his um, blessed be your name the early one that he did that uh, i think helped him become a lot more famous heart of worship 
um, 10,000 Reasons. I was actually just singing 10,000 Reasons alone in the auditorium a while, while ago as part of my worship. Um, let me tell you a bit about Matt's journey. Um, as a little kid, uh, his dad died when he was seven. And um, this was really tough on Matt. You know, some little boys perhaps need a father more than others, and Matt was one of those sort of little boys. And he just, it was really hard for him not having a dad. His, his uh, mom started going out with another guy, and Matt writes that he, he just hoped that, you know, here is my chance. Now I've got another chance for, to have a dad. And, uh, but it didn't work out like that. He says that he just came into our world and messed up mum real bad, messed up me real bad, and then left. Um, a little older, as Matt's approaching teenage years, he finds out that actually there was more to his dad's death than he realised his dad had actually committed suicide. And Matt found this really hard to take. And one of the things that he, he would say is, I just can't believe that dad loved me so little that he just didn't want to be around me. Uh, well, in the journey of some of this pain, uh, Matt started to meet with God with his acoustic guitar and he found often he'd lock himself away in his bedroom and sometimes for quite a long period he would just sing songs of praise and worship to the Lord and pray and connect with God. And he writes that God's presence deeply impacted him to the point where he really felt that God brought a healing touch to those, that emotional damage and the stuff of the, his past in a remarkable way. And because of that, Matt, Matt started to feel that calling that he wanted everyone to come in to the presence of God, that they would experience God's wonderful reality and the healing that he can bring. Second Samuel 6.13 says, When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Uh, it's interesting. Suddenly they're carrying the ark. Suddenly they're moving it again. It's interesting it's not on a cart anymore because it actually says they're carrying it. I mean, what's happened? Well, you see, um, the ark was supposed to be carried by the Levites. That was the way you were supposed to transport it, not on a cart. Um, we're going to find out that David actually dug back into uh, the, the Old Testament scriptures, into the Pentateuch, and realized they had transported it the wrong way. That the two golden poles that were, were slide down these, these circular things attached to the ark, um, it was to be carried by four Levites that way, and it was to be carried by walking it to wherever it was supposed to be. Um, to read um, David's account of this, as recorded in Chronicles 15, 2 and 13, David said, No one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him there forever. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke in out, out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him how to do it in the prescribed way. Um, friends, here really what we're learning is obviously God's biblical direction for this was important. God had put it in the scriptures with purpose. And although we live under the new covenant today, so worship is very different, nevertheless, it still holds that actually we need a foundation that is biblical in our journey of worship. Can I make this point? Number four, worship must have a biblical foundation. Four, worship must have a biblical foundation. You think of the, the New Testament where Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman, John 4.23, it's recorded. 
where he's chatting with her about a whole variety of things and he says this phrase about worship. Those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth. So two sides of it. On the one hand, we need to be caught up in the, the wonderful reality of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes that is quite moving and quite emotional. But also we need to be grounded in truth, in spirit and truth. There still needs to be the truth of God that governs our worship. 2 Samuel 6.14 says, Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Um, just let me describe the, the linen ephod. It was um, a richly embroidered apron-like vestment having two shoulder straps and ornamental attachments for securing the breastplate uh, worn with a waistband by the high priest. Um, so you've, you've got the idea. It, it's, uh, it's that kind of thing that David's wearing. It's, um, it's kind of a portion of the priest's garment, probably the little white shorts that are a part of the undergarment and the, the, um, the ephod thing over, over the top. Uh, and so he's dancing around with this thing. It actually says he was dancing with all his might. Now you think of David, he's this warrior. You know? <laughs> he is very, very fit. And so all of his muscles are taut. He's leaping and jumping around, dancing before the ark, celebrating the reality of God. So if he's doing it with all his might, he must have been really getting into it. Um, I mean, dance is, is mentioned a lot in Scripture, actually, as worship. You think here of Exodus uh, fifteen twenty. It says, uh, Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. Um, you know, you've heard this concept, um, the phrase, Baptists don't dance. Well, they didn't get it from the Bible. Uh, I'll have a look at this expression of worship. Psalm 47 verse 1. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. Um, the clapping of hands is a, is a regular expression of worship also in the scriptures. So we think of Psalm 134.2. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and praise the Lord. So the raising of hands is um, part of worship. It wasn't the Pentecostals who created it. This is 3,000 years old, this document I'm reading. Uh, or, or think of uh, Colossians 3.16 uh, Sorry, 3.16 of Colossians. Admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in our hearts. Now, friends, um, David is one who is clearly expressive in worship, and you see that as you read his psalms, as you, as you look at his life. Can I make the suggestion? Number five, those close to God are expressive in worship. Those close to God are expressive in worship. You know, and my hope in any church is that there is a measure of freedom in worship where people do have the freedom to, to raise hands, to clap, to kneel, to, to sing with great gusto, or even, you know, inappropriate, not running into people and stuff, but where appropriate, if there's room, dancing. Or another expression, of course, in the worship uh, is, is laying prostrate, laying out flat before God. You know, if there's room to do that, you know, why shouldn't we have all of those expressions in worship? If we want to be biblical about worship, they were all there in the scriptures you know um, i mentioned hillsong before and obviously there's a sense of vibrance and and freedom in hillsong but let me just mention you know actually a couple of the churches that the loudest singing i've ever heard one was chuck swindle's church in um, orange county uh, in los angeles i remember visiting a service there uh, many years back 
and a big auditorium, about uh, uh, 2,000 seats, so I was told, and it was packed, uh, three services a Sunday. Anyway, um, the worship, the singing, I was near the front, and so I had this wave of singers, and they were singing incredibly loud. I, I can sing fairly loud, but I was being drowned out, absolutely drowned out by the vocal power of the congregation. It was unbelievable how loud they were. Another example was I was at a... Um, a Baptist uh, convention, uh, National Baptist Convention of Australia, was being hosted in Hobart this particular year. And, uh, you know, uh, again, fairly large gathering, probably a couple of thousand or so. But again, I was um, where I was standing, fairly close to the front again. The wave of vocals coming over was insanely loud. So some of the loudest singers I've ever heard with those two particular events. Look at uh, 1 Samuel 6.16. It says, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, um, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Now just think for a moment of Michal. She's a daughter of King Saul. So she's grown up in the royal family. So she's used to that pro uh, protocols, I guess, and smart dressing and certain behaviors and all of that and she sees what david is doing here is just foolish you know doesn't see it it's worshipful certainly not just sees it as him being foolish you know and she is not happy about it um to read on second samuel six twelve, it says when david returned home to bless his household michael daughter of saul came out to meet him and said how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, she says with sarcasm, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants and as any vulgar fellow would. You know, and so how do you think David's going to respond to this? You know, is he going to kind of say, oh, yeah, be a bit sheepish and say, I, I guess you're right. You know, I mean, I, I guess I am the king. I should be a bit more dignified than this. The King James actually says how undignified, he uses that word. And, uh, well, no, that's not David's response. Uh, this is actually what he says, 2 Samuel 6, 21. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. That short verse, three times he refers to the Lord and uh, every time it's uh, using God's personal name. Yahweh so there's a personal sense in this whenever you see L-O-R-D in capitals it's Yahweh and he, that last phrase where he says I will celebrate before the Lord in the original text it's extremely strong so it's like nothing's going to stop me celebrating before God nothing will hinder this you will not quench my worship so it's spoken in those sort of terms and can I suggest this friends another point for us number six do not allow your worship to be stifled by the critical comments of others do not allow your worship to be stifled by the critical comments of others. You know, I remember um, at a Baptist denominational meeting in Sydney and I was pastoring a church at the time. We had a stack of young adults and heaps of people in their 20s and um, I was uh, there with, with a crowd of them actually and uh, we were, you know, the band took off and it was sounding pretty cool. We, we're singing and clapping and really... Um, celebrating the reality of our God and we had two people in front of us uh, retired folk and they turned around and they said to us all will you be quiet please well we just took absolutely no notice of them none whatsoever because it was their heart that was in the wrong, wrong place not ours 
<laughs> I remember another occasion where uh, I was, um, my church was involved in a kind of a, a combined uh, worship preaching event once a month. So one of the churches had a really big venue. Um, we would meet with several churches together at the venue and take it in turns with um, things like preaching and leading worship. So um, our church was um, leading the worship one of these weeks and uh, one of the worship leaders said something just before hitting into one of the songs. We're going to have some real fun tonight. And he hit into a song that spells out the name of Jesus. Well, we got this scathing letter from um, uh, a woman who was there and saying, how dare you have fun with the name of Jesus? And no, no, she's not an Anglican or a Baptist. No, she was a Pentecostal. And so you just got to remember whatever the movement Every movement has people in it that will stifle worship. You know, the reality is it's not about style or movement. It's more about where is that person's heart? Where is, where is our heart? You know, um, worship has much more to do with that, the heart attitude. Looking here at um, some further comments from Matt Redman about this very topic. I remember one time at Hillsong, Matt Redmond wrote uh, a song that's based on this thing I'm reading about King David where his wife has a go at him. Um, and it's called Undignified. I will become even more undignified than this is uh, part of the chorus. And I remember singing it once. You didn't actually, Hillsong will very rarely sing anything but their own stuff, but they were singing in Hillsong, Sydney, a, um, a Matt Redmond song that night. And I've read a chapter in, in Matt's book, uh, The Unquenchable Worshipper, that's all about that. It's, it's titled, um, uh, uh, has something to do with undignified in that chapter's title. And anyway, he, he writes in that chapter, um, he shares in relation to the passage we've been looking at, one of the Hebrew words for praise is halal. Uh, to give you the definition of that, it means to be clear, to shine, to boast, show, to rave, celebrate, to be clamorously foolish. And he plays on the last portion of the meaning there. He says, halal, halal means to be clamorously foolish or crazy enthusiasm for God. And his point is we get our word hallelujah from it. We get our word hallelujah from that. So the idea of quenching worship because it's getting a little bit crazy makes no sense at all, he goes on to say. Final point today. 2 Samuel 6.17 says, They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. You got the idea? So David is making sacrifices. And of course, we have that image, don't we, of the perfect lamb without blemish being sacrificed for the sins of humanity. And of course, for us, it, it was a picture looking forward to the New Testament where Jesus, the perfect Son of God, he would ultimately die on a cross, which would make that relationship with God come to life, make salvation possible. And I want to make the suggestion, number seven, that sacrifice is a foundation to worship. Sacrifice is a foundation to worship. The Apostle Paul emphasizes this in Romans 12 in the first couple of verses therefore i urge you brothers and sisters in view of god's mercy to offer your bodies as living as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to god this is your true and proper worship you know paul's there saying that you know at the heart of worship is this 
willingness to say, God, I surrender all. I give up my life to you. I want to put you in absolute first place. You are the priority above all priorities. I, I give myself over to you. I'm a living sacrifice in your hands. And certainly David lived this out. You don't just see David writing these beautiful psalms of worship when things are going well, when life's cruisy. There are moments when David went through terrible suffering and yet he still comes before God with really what is a sacrifice of worship. You think of the time when his own son, Absalom, rebelled against him and there was a civil war. His son ultimately had such power that David and his team and his soldiers fled the palace and they're hiding out in caves. And yet there in that environment, David writes the beautiful words of Psalm 63, filled with worship and adoration. In summary, friends, seven principles in worship. Number one, worship involves celebration. Two, worship includes reverence. Three, God's presence is central to worship. Four, worship must have a biblical foundation. Five, those close to God are expressive in worship. Six, do not allow your worship to be stifled by the critical comments of others. Seven, sacrifice is a foundation to worship. Let me just uh, finish with a final story that emphasizes this concept of sacrifice in worship. Horatio Spafford uh, was a Chicago-based lawyer in the uh, late 1800s and uh, he and his wife in 1847 decided upon a holiday. Horatio, however, couldn't get away from um, his work of law but his wife decided she'd have a holiday with their four children in France. Well, in the journey, their ship struck another ship mid-ocean. Mid Huge accident, terrible accident. Um, Mrs. Spafford was quick thinking. She got the kids up on the deck and, um, and there she prayed with them. And her prayer was at its simplest, Lord, please rescue us. But if not, prepare our hearts for eternity now. Well, um, the sailors, uh, some sailors found uh, Mrs. Spafford um, floating upside down. Uh, they were able to get her into the boat and re revive her. But all the children were never found. They all drowned. A few days later, she arrives at port in Cardiff, Wales, and she sends a, a telegram to her husband. Just two words. Saved alone. And at that point, as Horatio gets the news, I mean, we, we don't know all of his feelings, but, you know, it's very likely, of course, it was extremely difficult, you know, where he's thinking, God, why on earth did you allow my kids to drown? You know, I've committed my life to you. I've been serving you for years and I'm devoted to your purposes. Why have you allowed my kids to drown? But in the midst of all the turmoil of emotions, he actually penned these words as really what is a sacrifice of worship. He writes this, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. Famous hymn that, of course, is still sung around the world today. Shall we close in prayer? Father, here today we've um, been reminded of some powerful principles in worship. As we build this foundation firmly into our life a pillar of worship as 
part of us wanting to have strong spiritual foundations. Help us, Lord, to be truly a worshipping community. Help us as individuals to be truly worshippers of you, the Almighty, one true God. In Jesus' name, amen.